there's no easy answers to decades of bloody conflict. Those repeating tragedies can make you quite angry, quite mad. Coming up, a Palestinian Israeli from East Jerusalem explains how he's been able to take a few steps towards peace and reconciliation. Author Peter Stark reminds us why Tecumseh is honored as a major figure in early American history. He tried to defend native lands from frontier settlers from Minnesota to Florida. And he was a remarkable orator and diplomat and also a remarkable warrior and leader. And friends from Spain help us place an order at a busy tapas bar. You speak more Spanish than you think. You know how to say uno, dos, tres, and you know how to point with a finger. There are so many different things out there which is not in your everyday life that you should try. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Two of my favorite tour guides from Spain recommend itineraries for you to find out what makes their country so popular. And author Peter Stark explains how the U.S. border might have looked very different if Chief Tecumseh had been able to unite native tribes into their own nation back in the early 19th century. That's coming up later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. But first, I'd like to focus on the troubled Holy Land, where Israelis and Palestinians are struggling to coexist. The brutality of the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israelis and the subsequent destruction of so much of Gaza by Israel have left the region more divided than ever. A recent conversation I had with a young Palestinian who's dedicated his career to finding peaceful ways for each community to better understand the other seems very timely. Aziz Abu Sarah grew up as an angry Palestinian kid in East Jerusalem, throwing rocks at Israeli soldiers. He became radicalized after the police killed his brother. But when he started to take Hebrew lessons, Aziz realized that crossing barriers into West Jerusalem let him see the realities of the people he'd thought of as enemies. It also gave them a chance to know him as a person as well. Today, Aziz calls himself a radical reconciler. He heads an organization that brings together into the same room Israelis and Palestinians who've lost family members from their ongoing conflicts to share their grief and to look for a way to live together. Aziz and his Jewish business partner, Scott Cooper, also founded Medji Tours to provide peace-building travels to meet people on either side of a conflict zone and to hear their divergent stories. Note that our interview with Aziz was recorded several months before the most recent events in Israel and Gaza, and our focus was primarily on the walls that divide Palestinians and Israelis, not in Gaza, but in Jerusalem and in the West Bank. Aziz, welcome back. Thank you, Rick. I just love your story about how you grew up angry like so many Palestinian kids with loved ones who were who died in this struggle, but you, you grew beyond it. Can you just give us a little background? I understand your, your dad's cousin was a victim of the struggle between Palestine and Israel. Yeah, my dad had two cousins who were killed, one before I was born and one when I was, I don't remember now, nine, ten years old, who I knew very well, who was our next door neighbor. Through my life, five of my family members, including my brother, were killed. And just those repeating tragedies can make you quite angry, quite mad. It makes you feel that you have no choice But to revenge, it makes you feel that your whole life existence is about your anger. And if you let go, 
you are betraying your family, you are betraying yourself, you are betraying your, your father, your mother, who are very upset about all the people they've lost. You, you grew up thinking that this loss could happen any day to somebody else in your family. That just festers inside of you. And then if you have the occasion to cross the wall and go to the other side, as you did, you can find that there are people who are your counterparts who are dealing with the same need for revenge. You worked in Israel for a, you were a dishwasher and you wrote about how people hardly knew your name. You were just the Arab boy that was washing the dishes. Right. But then you took the initiative, you learned how to speak Hebrew and, and you got connected with Israelis and you met a Jew who was just as angry as you were. Yeah, I met both. I met Jews who were as angry as I was, people who've gone through experiences where they lost family members, people who lost their daughters, their brothers, their sons. I met somebody like Ronnie Hershenson, who've become a very dear friend whose two sons were killed as soldiers in the mm -hmm. army. I've met Rami Elhanan, whose daughter was blown up by a suicide bomber when she was a 13 year old. And those stories were quite, quite powerful because growing up, I never heard those stories. I've heard our stories. We, we often know our own pain and we find it difficult to connect with the pain of the other. Mm. It is so heartbreaking and it is just so, it's kind of like, not easy, but it's the natural inclination just to fall into that need for revenge and to make the killing worse. But there are courageous people who are stepping above that and working to connect. When I think of the Holy Land, I think of the wall that separates uh, millions of Palestinians from millions of Israelis. What was the rationale for building the wall? And uh, what's the view of it, would you say, from the Israeli side and the Palestinian side? How can we understand this wall? I think most Israelis see the wall as a security, safety wall. It was built right after the Second Intifada started in the early 2000s, and it was built after a wave of suicide bombings that have killed hundreds of Israelis. And so to many Israelis, it's safety, it's security. The way most Palestinians see it is, is the exact opposite. This wall confiscates a lot of Palestinian land. It creates areas, it's just around cities within the Palestinian territories with walls that makes them unable to connect to other Palestinian cities. And it's a sign of oppression and a sign of of taking your freedom. And neither hears the other and what this wall means to them. I can see why Israelis think it's about security. I disagree, but I can hear it and I can understand why they think in that way. And I think it's important that Israelis hear, even if sometimes they'll disagree, and what Palestinians see when they see this wall, especially if you live right next to it, it's very hard to, to normalize it. It's very hard to see it as a normal thing. A tragedy I saw when I was in the Holy Land was the wall actually functioned to keep the communities apart, which made healing more difficult. You know, when I grew up, the conflict was pretty bad. However, if you wanted to meet the other, it was possible. Today, if you want to meet the other, you need permits, you need military approvals, you need to find there are only a handful of places that you can legally get people to meet from the two sides. And so when we talk about, you know, me meeting those people I mentioned earlier, like Ronnie Hershenson and Ramil Hanan and so on, it is not legally possible for those meetings to happen, which means 
we don't learn about the story of the other. We don't get to listen to each other's pain. We see the other as a demon, as somebody who just wants to kill me. That's the only thing I see of the other. And unfortunately, it has been successful. Aziz Abu Sarah is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. His book, Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace, highlights efforts toward peace and reconciliation in many of the world's most divided societies. We have web links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Aziz, let's go beyond the Holy Land now because you've taken your Holy Land experience and you've gone global. Give us an overview of the walls, both physical and metaphorical, that are a big part of your work. Give me sort of a review of where are there walls that travelers are able to actively deal with. Walls exist everywhere I've been traveling, everywhere. Now, they're not always physical walls, but you can see, you know, even in Paris, in London, areas that people don't think of it as divided and segregated, there are walls. In our cities here in the U.S., we have those walls. In Washington, D.C., I remember taking a group of local travelers into an area called Anacostia, which is not commonly traveled to by people who live in the Washington, D.C. area, even though it's an old neighborhood, a very important neighborhood. There are some important things like the Frederick Douglass Museum. People don't go there because they're afraid to go there. They think it's not safe to go to that area. And I've seen that literally everywhere. You go to an area like Mostar in Bosnia, and Christians and Muslims often stick to their parts of the city. It's You don't see a wall, but the wall exists. Everyone who lives there know where that border is. One point you make very strongly in Crossing Boundaries is that you need to get different historical narratives. Museums, for example, are often nationally funded. A good example of that for me was learning about the potato famine in Dublin, which was would have been an Irish focus, and learning about it in Belfast, which would have been a British focus, and the whole potato famine in Ireland mm-hmm. was was accounted for differently. You recommend books to give different perspectives, like, uh, for example, Those Damned Rebels, The American Revolution as Seen Through British Eyes, or Side by Side, Parallel Histories of Israel and Palestine. I have found, and I would imagine you have too, that it's amazing how misguided a lot of travelers can be if they don't make a point to get information to help shape their travel plans and their perspectives that represent both narratives. Absolutely. I think first, and it was a shock for me when I first learned it, don't believe everything you read in a museum. It's a good starting point and then go and read more, study more. Uh, To me, a trip is to get my curiosity even more I get more interested because of this trip. If I see something in a museum that really interests me, I'm going to go and read more about it and study more about it. And you're going to find out sometimes what you read in the museum is not fully accurate. And that's okay. That's just how things are. Just be aware of it. You got to be bold enough that it's produced in a society where the money has to come with strings attached and it's not going to be a straight story. It's going to celebrate a certain perspective in most cases. Aziz, we're we're just basically out of time, but I'd like to finish with your experience in light of bridging these walls when you became a part of a, a bereaved families forum where Israeli and Palestinian families who had lost loved ones actually came together. You were the chairman of this organization. Yeah, uh, it's one of one of the best organizations that I wish nobody has to join. And it's the only organization that tries not to get bigger because it means more people would suffer. But it's a group of 600 Israelis and Palestinians who all lost family members. 
But it's such a powerful group because when you bring 600 families who all lost family members in the conflict, half Israelis and half Palestinians, it shocks people because they expect us to sit and fight, to sit and argue with each other. And instead, we always work together. We used our pain instead of to instill more fear and hatred and anger. And as you mentioned earlier, fear unfortunately convinces a lot of people and makes us do irrational things. We use our pain to encourage people to overcome hatred, to overcome fear, to connect with each other. And by saying, if I, who lost my brother, and Aframi, who lost his daughter, can work together, can say enough is enough, can say we're not doomed to this, we're not doomed to a cycle of violence, we're willing to break out of this violence, and we're not just going to work with each other, we see each other as brothers, as friends, then nobody has an excuse to not do the same, especially those who have not suffered the way we did. Oh, that must have been such a beautiful experience. I guess beautiful is the word. What a, what a hopeful thing. Aziz Abu Sarah, thank you for writing Crossing Boundaries, and you are just an inspiration in your work. Best wishes. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. There's more about Aziz and his work, including his TED Talk, at azizabusarah.com. We'll find out why Tecumseh is such an important figure in American history. But first, we're going to Spain on Travel with Rick Steves. Spain is one of the most popular tourism destinations in the world, second only to France. It's no surprise that the number of tourist arrivals keeps skyrocketing post-pandemic. Spain offers some of the world's most passionate art and culture, magnificent historical sites, great variety, cuisine, and nightlife. To help you enjoy the rhythm of Spain and to expand your comfort zone, like staying up past 11, we're joined by two of my favorite Spanish tour guides who specialize in taking American visitors to experience the best of their country. Jorge Roman joins us from his home in Madrid and Francisco Gloria is on the line from Pamplona. Amigos, welcome. Thank you, well, Thank you for hosting thank you for us. Me. Yeah. yeah, now, hey, um, you guys have been uh, busy as people have come back to traveling and We'll start with you, Francisco. First, uh, you know, you spend months every year on the road with Americans exploring your country. What do you think it is about Spain that makes it statistically a, a leading destination of all places in the world for travelers to visit year after year? What is it about Spain? Well, I think a lot of has to do with the vibe of the country. Really, it's a very relaxed country, very welcoming country. The thing is that we have a lot to offer. We have uh, a lot of history, a lot of incredible museums, and especially incredible food and wine. So all of that helps for people to come over here. Now, Jorge, as a guide, when you think of all of these attractions, what is your goal in shaping the Americans' experience when they come to Spain? When you start a tour, what, what do you hope to accomplish as a teacher? I just want to, I just want everybody to get immersed in the culture. You know, it's just to leave the fears in one side. Don't compare just do it. If you don't like it, you know where not to go. If you eat a piece of food and you don't like it, now don't try it again, but keep trying. There are so many different things out there which is not in your everyday life that you should try. So in other words, don't be afraid. Get out of your comfort That's zone. That's right, yeah. Well, Francisco, when you take a group and somebody is getting out of their comfort zone and trying something new... What's one of the biggest surprises that, that a traveler from the United States, for example, will have when they come to Spain? What's something they didn't realize they might just be crazy about? 
Well, I think one of the things that shocks more people is the food and especially the tapas. So the way we do tapas has nothing to do with the way you guys do tapas in the United States. In the United States, people sit down and they're waited on the table by a waiter. Here, tapas, it's getting a lot out of the comfort zone for Americans because you have to, I always tell them that you have to fight for your food. Americans, are you are super polite and you are always with a please and thank you. Here with tapas, it's like, I want that and that, go. And Francisco, you're in Basque country and in Basque country, it's particularly enthusiastic. It's like a, I always picture if you drop some bit of food into a little fish tank and there's a bunch of barracudas, it's just bah, 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 bah. everybody's after it. <laughs> and the same thing happens in a bar in, in San Sebastian. It's just here comes a new, and it's a plate of, it wasn't even on the menu. A plate comes out of the kitchen and there's eight little tapas and it's bah, 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 bah. You're so right. I mean, it's. <laughs> you got to be aggressive. You have to be aggressive. And that is. If you don't speak Spanish, you're at a disadvantage. Well, you know, everybody says, I don't speak Spanish. You speak more Spanish than you think. You know how to say uno, dos, tres. And <laughs> you know how to point with a finger. And I always tell Americans, you have beautiful teeth. Show them, smile, try to talk a little bit, and that's good enough. I love that. That's an advantage we have is all of the money we spend on our teeth. So take advantage of it. Really break that barrier of, I don't speak Spanish, don't mind, talk. That's it. Jorge, it's the same all over Spain, that we need to be, like you said, take a risk. Get out of your comfort zone. Don't be afraid. Order something that maybe you don't even understand uh, is a word you didn't know, and it might be a new favorite thing. That is so exciting. True. As you know, Rick, my mother... She uh, was blind when I was born, you know that already, and I grew up with a blind person, but she taught me how to eat things that I didn't like. And you know what? I transmit that message to my people. And that message is, if you like what you see regarding food, you have a 90% chances that you're going to love it in your tummy. So that's (laughs) what I tell my people. And they say, at the end, your mother was so right. And it's true. It is true. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Spanish tour guides Francisco Gloria and Jorge Roman, and they're helping us explore Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Francisco lives in Pamplona, that's in the northeast of the country, and Jorge is based in the capital city, Madrid. They host a podcast together. It's called Spanish Loops, and you can just listen to them, chat and share their passion for Spain. Uh, we'll have a link to it with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, Jorge, one thing you've written about is how you really love your country for its diversity yeah. and how you're proud to live in a nation with four official languages. Tell us why that matters and, and tell us about the four languages of Spain. The four languages, yeah. One of them is uh, Euskera, which is the name in Basque for the Basque uh, language. They don't really know where they come from, so there's many debates around it. Uh, the Galician language is another one. It's uh, the land of Spain above Portugal, you know, it's the Iberian Peninsula. Then we have Catalonian, which is not a mix. It's just a language on its own. It's a language that may have influences because of the, of the way where it is located geographically that created their own language besides Spanish. So diversity. For me, this is the key word and, and the most proud word to use when I'm touring my people and try to explain to them. So it's a rich heritage, with, uh, as indicated by four different language groups. So just to review, Castilian is, is what we call Spanish. That's Cor- most correct. of the country. Yeah. 
Basque is Euskara, and that's an ancient language yep. um, up in the north. Um, Catalonian is that whole area around Barcelona. Mm-hmm. And Galician is north of Portugal, right? Portugal, yes. Okay. Now, Francisco, you are from one of those language regions, the Basque country. Um, when you go traveling around Spain, can you actually find... Uh, I remember going to sandwich shops in Sevilla or in Barcelona or in uh, Santiago... And I see four languages on the menu in the sandwich shop, and they're all Spanish languages. Yes. I mean, officially in Spain, we do have the four languages. Everybody speaks Spanish. But as they're official languages, in many places you can find the four languages. More as a, it's more like a sign to say that we're open to the four languages. Because obviously, if you're in Seville and somebody orders you something in Basque, they will not understand it. I mean, the waiter will be like, <laughs> say it in Spanish, for God's sake. That's interesting. So it's really a political statement that we're happy to have Basque people here. We're happy to have Catalans here. Mm-hmm. Yes. I noticed when I go to the ATM machine in Barcelona, it will have Basque as one of the buttons for the language. I'm sure the people from Basque country could speak Spanish and get their cash out of the ATM. But that's just a symbol. It's not a necessity, but it's just a polite symbol to say, hey, we respect that you have your language and we're glad you're here. There we go. That's what it is all about. And also they are official. And they are official, yeah. Um, You know, Francisco, a few years ago, there was a lot of news about Catalan politicians. Actually, you know, Barcelona was trying to get more independence from Madrid. Um, How are the Basque people doing today? What what are Basque people saying about independence and being part of Spain? (laughs) Well, it's it's a complicated issue that is still running. Uh, The Catalan politicians, they want to leave Spain. And... Some Basque, they also want to leave Spain. So right now, the Basque separatist movement are very, very, very quiet. They're just waiting to see what happens with Catalonia. If it works, they will be next. If it doesn't work, well, too bad, Catalonians. Goodbye. I never thought about that. So Madrid, I thought Madrid was overreacting to the Catalan problem, but Madrid was seeing that if Catalan goes, then Basque country goes, and then maybe Galicia will start to feel like they can have their own way. But the problem, the core of this, is that if Catalonia leaves Spain, are they going to leave Europe, the European common market? Will they join euro money or do they have to create their own money? So the problem is, if it works for Catalonia, the Basques are going to go Nesk. But what about the Flemish? What about northern France, northern Italy? And Scotland. Every small region has to weigh the cost of independence. I mean, the benefits and the costs, because there's some practical realities. You have to have your own defense. You have to have your own, you know, currency. Currency. So it's not easy. Wow, what an interesting issue. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Jorge Roman and Francisco Gloria. They're our guides today to Spain. Francisco's website, if you want to check in on what he's up to, is travelingsteps.es. And Jorge's website is travelingwithjorge.wordpress.com and Jorge is spelled J-O-R-G-E Hey Jorge, when Americans go to Spain you've been leading Americans around Europe for, for years and years they always go to the same places Barcelona, Madrid, Salamanca Toledo, Granada Sevilla you know, the Costa del Sol what do you think Americans are missing when they just take the obvious best of Spain itinerary? What, what's one destination you think is just really overlooked by American travelers? Well, there is something which is, uh, I mean, you cannot beat that. You cannot tell a, a traveler that is using their time and their money 
to come to this country and tell them, no, I'm not going to take you to the Sagrada Familia. Same with the Alhambra. Imagine yourself, Rick, that you've never been to Granada. You want to see the Alhambra. I'm going to tell you, no, my tour is yeah. not, doesn't include the Alhambra. Obviously, you're going to be very disappointed. So blockbusters are there and you need to see them. But there are paths off the way to a tiny little town lost in the mountains that the only road to get into the town is the same road to get out of it. <laughs> there's no, yeah. it's like a cul-de-sac, right? And uh, you just get there and there's only one restaurant and that restaurant is going to do their best to provide the local gastronomy. Nothing to do with anything that you can find in, in big places. I would say uh, there is a little, tiny, tiny little town in Andalusia called Peñolite, P-E-N with a little apostrophe on top, O-L-I-T-E. Peñolite. I mean, uh -huh. just to get there with a regular car is, is per se really difficult and scary. Not because of the road is in bad condition, it's because it's so snaky and it seems that you're yeah. going miles, but at the end, geographically, from the main road, it's just barely half a mile. But to get there, you have to divert to that place. Then you get so to. That's the trick. We have to go down those narrow roads, yeah, go down those dead yeah, roads. Yeah, absolutely. Have a spirit of adventure that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, true. So, hey, Francisco, we're talking about um, uh, Spain coming out of the pandemic. The crowds are back, aren't they? I mean, I think it's as crowded this year as it was before the pandemic. What are the challenges that crowds are causing? I've heard that in some cities there's so many tourists that some of the local people are actually thinking, you know, tourists, go home. This is a problem. There's too many of you. Well, I think this is worldwide. We all thought that COVID was going to rethink what tourism is all about. We have it. So we have a lot of people coming in. And what cities are doing are, first of all, for example, they're not allowing groups, large groups walking on the streets. Groups over 20, mm. for example, in Barcelona, they're not allowed. In San Sebastian, we're about to cut down to 20 as well. People with microphones, mm. you know, uh, tour guides, if you're not wearing whispers, you're not getting in. Uh, the monuments, monuments now, the tickets are not anymore group tickets. They're individual tickets. And you have to go with your mm -hmm. passport and you have to prove that you are Rick Steves. Here's my passport. Here's my yeah. ticket. This way, companies, they don't buy like 100,000 tickets and they resell them. So everything has to go yeah. by the person, which is very good. So there's been a quite a bit of change with the technology of selling popular sites. Uh, I've noticed that it's becoming uh, more complicated for us because... You can't have a guide with 25 people on the streets. You have to have two guides with 12 people each, and mm -hmm. you can't be talking really loud to 25 people. You have to put the whisper systems on so the guide can talk just at a regular whisper and everybody can hear okay. And you can't take 25 people into the museum, or you can't even buy tickets in advance without the names on those tickets, which makes it tough if you're a tour promoter because you need to get tickets to promise to sell that tour. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, all a sign of tourism. Everybody's going to the same places. There's more people than ever traveling, and we have to be smart with our travels. So much to talk about for going to Spain, but I'm glad that people are back on the road, and I'm glad that you guys are enjoying your tour guiding. Now, when you guys are guiding, what is the biggest joy for you? Um, I can imagine you know, taking somebody to the Prado and let them know that Spanish painting is just as good as Italian painting, taking somebody to Rioja region and let people sample the wine and let them know that this wine is as good as the French wine, or take them to the Valley of the Fallen and let them know how Spain fought for its independence uh, or how it suffered in the Civil War and how it's still 
you know, um, struggling to keep everybody together. What are the biggest joys for you, the biggest accomplishments as a guide, Jorge? Well, um, one of the biggest ones is related to food. And when they are on their own, I tell them, look, in this place, you can have the best gazpacho ever. Or in this other place, you can have whatever. And when they come to me the next day, they said to me, oh, my God, the gazpacho you recommended was beautiful. To me, it's worth just, you know, the entire tour to go to those places and act like locals. So that's one of my big joys. Jorge Roman is a tour guide based in Madrid with family roots in southern Spain. He's joined right now on Travel with Rick Steves by Francisco Claria from his home studio in Pamplona in the north of Spain. You'll find them on Facebook, and they co-host a podcast about exploring Spain. Look for Spanish Loops on Spotify. They also offer private guiding services. Francisco's website is travelingsteps.es, and Jorge's is at travelingwithjorge.wordpress.com. Francisco, I'd like to finish with just one little crazy factoid that you enjoy sharing. Um, What's a quirky little insight into Spain that, that you particularly like to share as a guide? So, so one of, there are many little details that makes cultural differences. To me, one of the funny, funny ones. And this is, I learned it when I went to Seattle. And you guys have in America a washcloth, this t- tiny little towel. Here in Europe, we don't have it. I mean, we do have one, but it's by the bidet. Is for the cheek, but the other cheeks. So when I saw an American <laughs> using that that goes for the cheeks on their face, I was like, no, 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 no. We don't use it. So I was like, I tell my people, don't do that. Don't use the bidet towel on your face, please. <laughs> That's a great example of fun little cultural insights. And you can have some <laughs> you can have some embarrassing moments if you're not paying attention. Hey you guys, let's just close our conversation with with one word that you like to encourage your travelers to know and use while they're in Spain. Jorge, what's the, the, the language phrase or word that you really like your, your group to know how to use? Uh, to use or to add always when they have that language barrier, I try to teach them what they want in the, in the bars, okay? But always I tell them, do it with a big smile and at the very end say, por favor. They will notice your foreign accent, but if you say very quickly, Two beers and one wine, por favor. That por will, favor. That will open all doors. Por favor. Francisco, what is the word along with por favor that you like your groups to learn and use? So I, I got a lot in the Basque country, so I want my people to learn some Basque. And the word they need to learn is esquerre casco, which is thank you. And it's kind of difficult for them to remember, but there's a very easy way. In America, you have the casco supermarket. Imagine it in Halloween. That is a scary casco. That's how we say thank you. <laughs> scary casco. <laughs> so, and that means thank you in Basque country. Mm-hmm. Scary casco. That's it. Beautiful. Hey, Jorge and Francisco, muchas gracias for joining us, and I hope to see you in Spain soon. Thanks a lot. Thank scary you, casco, Rick. Thank you so much. You'll find links to our guests each week at ricksteves.com radio. Chief Tecumseh came from an honored line of Shawnee warriors and chiefs in the land we now call Ohio. His efforts to unite native tribes from Minnesota all the way to Florida made him one of the most important figures in 18th and early 19th century America. 
In fact, even white settlers he opposed admired him. Up next, Peter Stark takes us into a chapter of early American history you might have overlooked, where the conflicts of that day may still be echoing in our society today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The American desire to go west, young man, started back when President Thomas Jefferson and Indiana Territorial Governor William Henry Harrison secured tens of millions of acres from the indigenous tribes who lived there. It was the old Northwest Territory. You might say it was a bargain, or you could say it was a steal. They made land available at low cost for hard-working settlers to establish farms and communities out in the wilderness, expanding west of Pennsylvania and Virginia. Shawnee warrior Tecumseh attempted to organize native tribes in the region, the region that we know now as Ohio, to oppose the expansion. His battles against Harrison's forces would become frequent and legendary. Author Peter Stark suggests that the tensions between the competing communities Harrison and Tecumseh represented in the early 19th century may still be playing out today in the underlying friction that seems to still haunt the United States of America. Peter joins us now to give us an insight into Tecumseh and Tippecanoe and Tyler II, William Henry Harrison. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. So William Henry Harrison and Tecumseh. You know, I only know Harrison as the president who died after one month of his inauguration, and he had that catchy campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. And Tecumseh was a great Indian warrior, but I don't know anything more than that. Just in a nutshell, who were they, and, and why do they matter in American history, especially today? Well, Harrison is what I call a known as a, he's known as a bar trivia joke, the answer to a bar trivia joke. Who had the shortest term as U.S. president? Harrison, one month. He died after one month in office in his late 60s. But when he was in his 20s, teens, 20s and 30s, as a young man on the Western frontier, as a an Indian fighter, and then as a territorial politician, he was extremely influential in what we became as a nation. And partly he did it by convincing Congress as a young man to sell land rather than in huge chunks to Eastern investors, to sell it in little pieces to poor white guys so they could buy it on credit and start their own homesteads. Huh. Meanwhile, Tecumseh was a guy who came from a long line of, of Shawnee warriors. And his dad died when Tecumseh was six. His dad died fighting the Virginia British soldiers coming over the mountains to defend white settlers who had come over the mountains. These are the Appalachian Mountains, not the Rockies. The Appalachians come from the eastern seaboard over the mountains into the Ohio Valley to settle illegally. And so tensions and, and fighting erupted between Shawnee and Cherokees and these early Virginia settlers. And the British governor of Virginia sent soldiers over. A large group of Shawnees went to fight them. Tecumseh's father was one of those guys. And he died fighting them. And he, in his dying words, told his sons, uphold the family honor as warriors and never give in to the whites. And so Tecumseh eventually unified tribes from Lake Superior to the Gulf of Mexico to hold the land as one, as one unit, so that the U.S. forces could not splinter the tribes or splinter chiefs apart and take the mm -hmm. land that way. And so Tecumseh and Harrison ended up running up against each other. 
what a thrilling story and what a great sort of basis for your book, Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's struggle for the destiny of a nation, to think that there was this great rivalry between a future American president and a great Shawnee chief. By the way, you used the term Indian a few moments ago, and you're a scholar who studied this, and uh, you didn't do that accidentally. These days, we're being very, very careful about privileged white people speaking respectfully of, of people who have been mistreated historically and so on, and, and we don't want to be thoughtless. But I also think we don't want to go overboard. What is your take on, on using the term Indian? Well, it's, there is this kind of spreading in the culture to a certain degree that it's somehow a derogatory term, which it is not. And Indians call themselves Indians. And there are many different terms, you know, Native, Native Americans, indigenous people. There are so many different terms, tribal members. I mean, basically, I use the term Indian and Native and indigenous people and tribal members interchangeably with a preferred way. I mean, for the for Native Americans, is that you name them by their tribe. So you say, you know, a Shawnee hunter. Generally, that's the, the best direction to head. But to say Indian is derogatory, is, it's just not the case. And it's it's very commonly accepted to use in historical context anyway. So when I read your book, what I'm really struck by is by the nature of our way of doing history. We don't really paint Indian cultures or Native American cultures with a lot of respect. And Tecumseh was able to travel, like you said, from Minnesota to Florida and unite people of different tribes. That's just mind-blowing. I cannot imagine the hurdles that he faced organizing all of these disparate tribes and actually then partnering with Britain so they could unite and try to stop the westward movement of the United States. Yeah, well, it's a remarkable feat, and he was a remarkable orator and diplomat and also a remarkable warrior and leader, charismatic guy. I'd bring up the analogy that I think, you know, as we as modern Americans of, of, you know, mostly European descent, but think of the tribes hundreds of years ago as, you know, like, okay, there's some village sitting around a campfire up this way, and then another village around a campfire 200 miles away, and there's nothing in between, and they're not connected in any way. That was not the case at all. There was so much connection and intermovement among tribes and communication. I compare the tribes of, like today's Ohio Valley, you know, the whole center of the continent, which I've studied quite extensively. Sometimes I compare it to, you know, think of Europe in like 1500. And think of all the little, the principalities. I was going to say Europe is a bunch of, Europe is tribes. It's tribes every which way. And think of it, 1500, you know, that there weren't big nations. There were all these different entities and they had all different alliances. And some were at war with each other. Some were, you know, in alliances with each other. The same thing was true of North American Indians. Exactly the same thing. So for Tecumseh to organize these tribes was not all that unusual. And some of these uh, tribal people made a career, I suppose, out of learning the other tribe's language so they could translate. Oh, very much. I mean, and, and they didn't even have to make a point. They grew up in a lot of cases with several different languages. It's exciting to open our minds to this. Now, have you thought in your studies, Peter, how history might have been different if Tecumseh had actually succeeded? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, if Tecumseh had succeeded, you know, the U.S. might end today about Columbus, Ohio. And West of Columbus would be what the British wanted to call the Indian barrier state. So the entire Midwest, from what's now Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico, would be a state where neither European power nor the U.S. had any control whatsoever. 
it was in the hands of the tribes. And then west of the Indian barrier state, across the Mississippi River or farther west than that, you know, that was just sort of like out there, left alone. You know, the Spain could claim it. So the U.S. could have ended at Columbus. And if Tecumseh had succeeded, another thing that I think about is that our attitude towards both the earth itself and the conservation of the earth itself and preserving its bounty would be very different. And our attitude towards people who are not like us, towards, you know, whatever, people of color, different cultures, would be much more embracing with wider arms because that would be so much part of what the United States was early on. But it it didn't happen that way. It might have tempered our capitalism also. Yes, great point. The Native societies, different tribes were not always, but very much community-oriented, sharing. If you're a hunting Mm -hmm. tribe, you know, you come in with an animal one day and Mm -hmm. you might not have another animal for two months. So you have to share the animal with your villager, friends and family, so they'll share with you. And so there's a very much a community orientation. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Peter Stark. He's highlighting the ongoing battles between William Henry Harrison and Shawnee Chief Tecumseh in his book. It's called Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's Struggle for the Destiny of a Nation. You can learn more about Peter's work at his website. It's simply peterstarkauthor.com. Peter, you suggest that the, the tensions between Harrison and Tecumseh back in the early 19th century, those tensions may still be playing out today as we have a divided society here in the United States. How so? Well, I think those two characters, I chose them because they do embody two dynamics early in our country's founding. And our country made choices. Unfortunately, those choices were often by default. And the choices were not to recognize, for instance, tribal land rights and take land from tribes every which way the U.S. could. And that is playing out today in our attitudes towards minority people, towards whether it's Native Americans or people of color. We don't acknowledge, in the case of Native Americans, what they underwent. They lost 95% of their land. Mm. And we have to acknowledge that as part of our history. And it's not like we have to celebrate it, but we need to acknowledge it in order to bring those people closer to us. Now, Peter, if somebody reads your book, Gallop Toward the Sun, they may well be inspired to visit some of these places uh, in the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region that are connected to Harrison and Tecumseh. Can you just take the last couple minutes of our talk here and talk about three or four of the places that we might want to actually visit on a, on a vacation as we travel around the, that part of the United States? Well, so much of what unfolded between William Henry Harrison and Tecumseh unfolded in what's not, you know, known as travel destination country, uh, the Midwest, the Ohio Valley. But there's some really cool places. One of the most remarkable residences in the U.S., in my mind, is the Grouseland residence in Vincennes, Indiana, which was what Harrison and his wife Nancy built in 1802 when it was then way at the fringe of the wilderness. And it's essentially Harrison was the sixth generation of an old Virginia plantation family. So he designed when he was territorial governor and he was about to take 30 million acres of land from the tribes. He designed this house that's like this elegant Virginia mansion on the upper floors, you know, the main floors with parlors and dining rooms. And there were little sparkles in the dining room walls so the candlelight would reflect. And, you know, just total elegance upstairs, the 
foyers designed after Mount Vernon and blah, blah, blah. And then you go in the cellar and it's a fortress. It's two foot thick stone walls with gun ports. There's a gunpowder magazine. There's an in the cellar well. There's its own Whoa. kitchens. So it's an it's a self-contained fortress with an elegant plantation sitting room on top of it. Okay, so that's that's Grouseland. It's it's uh, William Henry Harrison's mansion, Vincennes, Indiana. It goes back to 1802. What's another site we might want to think of? Uh, some of the battle sites are really interested. The Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, that was 1811, November of 1811. That's a really interesting place to visit. It's near Lafayette, Indiana, which is the home of Purdue University. And that's a very well-preserved site that there's a great museum there. And there's also a state park that has some reproductions of, of the Indian village that was there. That Tibicanoe area was the epicenter of Tecumseh and his brothers, the prophets, their main headquarters was there. And you wrote about a, a very interesting battle called the Battle with No Name. There's actually a battlefield. Oh, yeah. You want to go obscure. <laughs> you want to go to do some obscure traveling. <laughs> See if I can get the name of the town right. It was called Fort Recovery, and I think it's Ohio. And it's a beautiful farm country, and it's this little teeny town. And it was where in uh, 1791, George Washington, president for two years, sends that not even an army, it's kind of the prototype of the army, this ragtag collection of soldiers to go into the Ohio Valley and go punish the Shawnee banditti in the Ohio Valley. And this big force of Washington's gets completely annihilated by the confederated tribes, oh. Shawnee, Miami, Potawatomi, at this site, this particular rise of land along, uh, I'm spacing out the name of the river, it's along one of those Ohio rivers, and that site is now this little town. But this defeat was so humiliating, it got swept under the rug of American history and never got a name. So it's known as the battle with no name. And, you know, people talk about the battle of the Little Bighorn or, you know, Custer's Last Stand, same thing, as being this huge defeat of U.S. forces. Well, like 200 soldiers and officers died in the Battle of the Little Bighorn. In this one, six to 700 soldiers and officers died, and a number of civilians. It was this incredible route. The survivors sprinted for 100 miles over two or three days to get to the safety of Fort Washington at what's now Cincinnati. Wow. Peter Stark, of all of these places that go back to the early 1800s, what's a fort, a military fort, that is your favorite from this time period? One of my favorite places from this time period it's not in the Ohio Valley, but it's up in the Great Lakes, in the upper Great Lakes, called Mackinac Island. And it's this mm. beautiful, beautiful island. And it was an Indian trading center for centuries, probably thousands of years. And then it became a French trading post and a fur trapper trading post. And then it became a fort. And it played an instrumental role in the War of 1812. And these battles at Tecumseh was involved and not that particular one at Fort Mackinac. But it's a really beautiful place to visit, and it was, it still is to some degree. But for a long time, it was, it was sort of like the, you know, the Newport of, you know, Newport, Rhode Island, where the big summer mansions were of the New York barons. Hmm. Uh, Mackinac Island was sometimes they called it the Newport of the Midwest, and you know, the big barons of Detroit and Chicago would have their summer places there because it's this beautiful island, hmm. kind of between Lake Superior and Lake Huron. Peter Stark's latest book is Gallop Toward the Sun, Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison's Struggle for the Destiny of a Nation. In it, 
He examines the rivalry between these two influential early Americans and how they set a pattern for a growing United States. Peter's a longtime correspondent for Outside Magazine and an adventure writer and historian. He's joining us from his home in Montana right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His bestseller, Astoria, has been adapted into a two-part play. His website is peterstarkauthor.com. Peter, when we're thinking about Tecumseh, what's your takeaway from this guy? I mean, it's just, we are so wired not to appreciate these great Native American statespeople. Can you call them statespeople? Tribal people. I mean, people that really were leaders in their day. We don't understand. Or tribal diplomats. I think of him as a yeah, tribal I, diplomat. I mean, we have Chief Joseph up here in the Northwest. We know Chief Joseph, and, and, and you know Tecumseh. Yeah, Tecumseh's name has kind of been lost, unless you are from that area directly. And that, that he, in the 1900s, or the 1800s, was considered by historians then as the greatest Indian leader who ever lived. You know, and this is during the time of Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And yet his he's kind of slipped off the screen for some reason, yet he was so remarkable as a leader, as a statesman, as you say, a tribal diplomat, in unifying people, in bringing people towards him. And he was a fun-loving guy. He was really fun. He was smart. He was kind. And he was a fierce warrior. And it sounds like he was a rare Native American leader who transcended tribal identity. He became a folk hero among Indians. He became a folk hero among Indians, but also among whites. And so the way his name lives on today is William Tecumseh Sherman in one sense. And William Tecumseh Sherman's dad lived in that region during the time of Tecumseh's, you know, uh, ascendancy and was a huge admirer of Tecumseh. So he Wait a minute, you're talking name... Sherman, the you're talking Sherman, the Civil War, uh, the gen... Civil War general. Yeah, the famous Civil War named general. named after an Indian hero. Well, there's a problem there because Sherman's old man wanted to name him Tecumseh Sherman. And then as the story goes, the like the Baptist minister who was baptizing him said, no, you can't have a pagan name for a first name. We're going to name him William, and you can stick with Tecumseh for a middle name. So it's William Tecumseh Sherman. Wow. You could get away with that today and nobody would complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it would work. It would work. Hey, Peter Stark, thank you so much. I just, one of the great joys of my work in this uh, show is to talk to people like you who are passionate about something that I didn't know you could be passionate about, frankly, <laughs> and to realize <laughs> this world is filled with interesting stories and people who know how to tell them. And mostly, thanks for shining a light on this amazing Shawnee chief, Tecumseh, who even William Henry Harrison called a genius. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Website uploads are managed by Andrew Wakeling. Jerry Frank wrote and performed our theme music. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. I've found that if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can. And that's why the Rick Steves guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.